The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. And um, I guess a good one to answer off this one is uh, is Jeff's question here about fixed indexed annuities. Um, they sometimes get a bad reputation because of their fees slash commissions. I like their ability to replace bonds in a portfolio. Are there specific uh, FIAs you prefer over okay, others? Mr. So compliance. Right off the bat, unfortunately, <laughs> that last part of the question for compliance reasons, I've we cannot answer. I've got my chief compliance officer right um, here with me today. So, <laughs> no, we're not we're not able to talk yeah, about specific I mean, financial products. So we we can't even get into um, this. <laughs> but generally, I mean, we can say a little bit about fixed index annuities and you know using them in place of bonds and things like that, though, because that can be a useful approach. Mm-hmm, absolutely, it's. I've done a, a lot of studies along these lines. So the, real quick, the basic idea of a fixed index annuity is you link it to some stock index like the S&P 500. It will be linked to the price returns because it's going to use, this is getting technical, but financial derivatives that don't give you a total return. They are only linked to price returns. So that means capital gains, not not the dividends from the stock market index. And then you have principal protection. If the stock index is negative, you don't lose any money. If the stock index is positive, you will share in the upside, but you won't get all the stock market upside. Usually they'll have a cap. If the cap is, say, 8%, then that means if the S&P 500 is up, well, between 0 and 8%, you'll get whatever that is in terms of the price return. If it's up more than 8%, you're capped at 8%. But now every year you're going to get interest credited to you at somewhere between zero and eight percent and to the extent that the stock market is up more often than not you're going to average somewhere closer to the eight percent side than the zero percent side whether what if that number is exactly you'd have to kind of it's would depend on what you're going to assume about stock market returns but then you compare that to bonds and if you have taxable bonds you're going to be paying taxes on the interest every year if you have bonds in an IRA, you get the same tax deferral benefit as the annuity provides. But then you look at it on an after-tax basis. Even though the index annuity is linked to a stock market index, it's not an alternative to the stock market. It sometimes gets pitched as getting stock market gains without the risk of the stock market. That's not what it is. It's potentially a bond alternative for the portfolio. And that's where in the work that I've done, yeah, I think you absolutely can can look at these as part of the asset allocation mix as a potential part of your fixed income allocation in your portfolio. And uh, real quick, just because there was a a theme here with Bob's question and now with with, with your question here is is just in terms of annuities and recommending annuities and things like that, there there needs to be a, a broker in, in the purest sense of the word broker mm-hmm. involved because these are contracts. These are significant contracts that you're essentially signing. There's no like 
like market, like the New York Stock Exchange, and you're buying an ETF and you put in a ticker symbol for the S&P 500, SPX, buy a thousand shares at this price and, and you're done. That doesn't exist. Hence, that's why even Wade said earlier, uh, th- th- there needs, right now, the way it is, is there has to be an, is it, here's a good one, what, Bob? Interlocutor. (laughs) (laughs) There needs to be kind of that middle person because they're contracts. And so it's not just a matter of, hey, what are the good, you know, and and they change all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, they they change all the time. You know, whereas right now the S&P 500, the the SPX ticker, it's going to be the same five years from now, you know, 10 years from now, et cetera. And so, but that's not the same with the types of contracts that are issued you know, that are, you know, that are annuities. And so you just have to keep that in mind. It's not, there's no clearinghouse, if you will, for, for these contracts. Just wanted to say that that's why you can't just get online and buy one. Yep. So, uh, I I have to ask this one because I'm, this goes back to the, 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 the distribution one. John Reckenthaler just wrote an article on Morningstar indicating that higher bond yields now support a 4% withdrawal rate. Assumption is 30-year withdrawal period and a 50-50 portfolio. Yeah, I th- and I think that's consistent with the answer I gave earlier. Okay. To be clear, all <laughs> I was saying was just because a 30-year tips letter supports 4%, you can't treat that as a guarantee that a diversified portfolio would support 4%. With that being said, now, I mean, all all John did is Monte Carlo simulations <laughs> where now that interest rates are higher, you can assume higher bond returns. And then potentially with a risk premium added to that, higher stock returns. And yeah, that's going to make it much more likely that the 4% rule would work in today's interest rate environment. So I, I yeah. mean, in terms of the math behind what that calculation is telling you, I, I don't yeah. disagree with it. There is something worth teeing off. Look, here's, but this is, a, this is what, at the larger level, though, I kind of want to disabuse uh, William for, 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 for thinking like this is even important. Uh, because... I bet you when I read that out loud, Bob and Wade's answer internally was like, yeah, so, you know, Mm -hmm. who cares? I mean, and we're folks that, okay, you can say, I don't know what I'm talking about. That's fine. Guilty, right? But you got Bob and Wade and they're very learned about this subject matter and it doesn't matter. You know, I think we just need to move on because next year Morningstar will write something and say, you know, take the current rate, do a Monte Carlo and say, hey, now it's 3.6%. Yeah, and, and you're going to think, wow, this is the it. the point that I really wanted to tee off on there because you skipped over William's parenthetical. Sorry, to 3.3. You know, <laughs> saying it now supports a 4% withdrawal rate as opposed to a 3.3% withdrawal rate. That's the same number, guys. Um, you know, th- we should be talking in like big round numbers on stuff like this. 3.3 versus 4%, you know, ex post facto here is the same number. You know, we just Wait, is that Harry have... Potter? Is that a Harry Potter reference? Are you... <laughs> I guess it's Latin. I don't know. Expo... No, um, no, <laughs> but it's there's no precision in any of this stuff. We can calculate these numbers out to as many decimal places as you want. But it just doesn't matter. You know, it's the it's significant figures from like sixth grade science. You know, you can only measure as finely as your instruments. And our instruments suck with ter- in this type of context. And this actually gets back, um, you know, there was a question earlier about efficient frontiers. 
as a purely theoretical idea, great. Yes, they exist in terms of using them to build your portfolio. I hate them. They're horrible. There is no precision here. Trying to place your portfolio on the efficient frontier usually is just going to hurt you. You know, you're going to be optimizing your portfolio in very specific ways and using those optimizers. The only thing you optimize is your errors. You're going to force just yourself to, into a weird portfolio. Just just to talk about what you mean by that. Usually you have these things called portfolio opt- optimizers where they take an asset, cl- they take your asset classes and let's just say you have a stock bond or whatever. And it comes with an expected return and standard mm-hmm. deviation, expected returns. And so a, a, a mean variance optimizer will, will sort of place them. What's the best allocation to get this on the efficient frontier? But what you'll find is you'll get some weird results. You'll get something that says, I'm making it up now, yeah. but you'll get something that says large cap stocks, 20%, REITs, 70%, and fixed income, 10%. You know, and that's the best fit on the efficient frontier. No one in their right mind is going to look at that and say, that's what I'm doing. And then change it the next year based on standard deviation changes of historical stuff and returns changes. It's just not done like that. So what you do is you start putting guardrails around the optimization algorithm. And your guardrails are saying effectively, yeah, I want REITs, but no more than 5% and no less than 3%. I want domestic stocks, but no more than 40%. And no less than 30%, you know, something like that. So what you're effectively doing is just eyeballing it anyways yeah. and, and and putting some sort of thing that kind of makes sense. And so, yeah, I wouldn't get – I guess this is like a debunking uh-huh. <laughs> Q&A to some extent. But I, I really wouldn't get cut up in the efficient frontier mumbo-jumbo. I mean it, it's great for, for academia kind of thinking conceptually about what you're trying to do. But when it comes to precisely creating an allocation, I don't know any stand-up firm that does anything remotely close to. Well, to clarify to a little bit like what that. the question's asking Wait. about, so yeah, what you're describing is the modern portfolio theory style, and where you choose some asset classes, you decide on returns, volatilities, correlations, you throw them into that optimizer, and you get an asset allocation. And it's very sensitive to the assumptions, and you can get some very odd-looking asset allocations from that. I, that's not exactly what this question was getting at. I think it's more the retirement income version oh, of okay. it, which is just the broader. Well, it still I'm has sorry, the same GMH. Problems. I'm sorry, GMH. I'm sorry, GMH. I had that in me. Yeah, it's that's usually going to stick to the broader asset. <laughs> well, like, it's not five problem. different bond funds that you're picking weird allocations with. It's more the stocks and bonds, income annuities. Uh, and then, yeah, the efficient frontier for retirement income, that's really one way to tell the story about how risk pooling allows annuities to help support retirement spending needs more efficiently than bonds do. Uh, then they are asking about like just changing the bonds to stable value funds. Yeah, you, I don't know that that's going to necessarily overwhelm the risk pooling through annuities, but at least to the extent that you don't have risk of loss in the same manner as you would with bonds. It's it's could tweak the efficient frontier a little bit. And then I guess we're getting back to your point of, yes, what sort of tweak do you get? I don't think it's, well, I don't, <laughs> it could potentially tweak it in a weird way, but I don't think it will. It's just probably stable value funds will not get to the frontier either. Right. I, I just, I, 
it's the same problem with efficient frontiers, whether it's retirement income, whether it's purely investment portfolio. It's we don't a big part of this is we're looking at historical data, you know, we're or we're making guesses about what the future is going to look like. We're going to be wrong in our assumptions. So we could go in and design the perfect portfolio for the last 30 years, the perfect plan for the last 30 years. That's not going to be the perfect plan for the next 30 years. Um, so what we need to do is sit with what makes you comfortable. You know, what what looks like it pencils out, what looks like it's a reasonable approach that you can deal with going forward, that you'll be able to deal with however the market evolves and sit with that plan. If that if you're not able to stay disciplined, if that plan doesn't work for you, it doesn't matter because um, you're not going to be there. And you're right. I, I think I am, you know, being a little hard on GMH. It's just I saw the a body Frisian Frontier, so I went <laughs> off on a little soapbox tangent. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, our stable could stable value funds be considered as an alternative? And you, you answered that. Sure. And William, you know, fires back, and he's right. Annuities have a bad rap because outside of SPIA, you need to invest a lot of time to understand them. And even then, FIEs are very difficult to compare because insurers do not use common terms. I don't I don't necessarily think they get a bad rap because they're difficult to understand. It's part of it. I think yeah. the pricing because then there's yeah, no part, transparency. It's not just that. But you can make the case. It's, it obscures. Yeah, that's the it's more transparent. Yeah, yeah it's a way to hide fees. It sometimes intentionally <laughs> obscures. Yeah, and I would like you to address something here, Wade, but I would venture to say stocks, you know, if you really get down into it, stocks, bonds, certain instruments, they're you know, it's just anything with numbers, you know, can can become complex. I'm, I'm not so sure it's the complexity. I think it's just they, they're, they're, they're the transparency issue. Plus, I do agree that insurance do not use common terms. Even when we did our podcast, mm-hmm. Wade, remember, there was like, you know, they're, they're not English terms. And so part of this is because well, our, they're English, but they're not used in the English definition. And more so, every company word. uses a different term for the same thing, which makes it super confusing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I, I think, so I, I, and this goes back to their contracts. They're not something that there's a clearinghouse for. So every company has their own contract. And so they have their own internal jargon. And so, yeah, it does make it difficult. Now, you said transparency. If it's something that I think is, is interesting, and maybe if you can do this, it would be helpful. The difference between an annuity spread expense versus an mm-hmm. actual fee. Sure. Right. So fixed in, well, any, pretty much any fixed annuity, including fixed index annuities, they're spread products. And you can think of it just like a bank. When you put your money in a checking account, they might pay you an interest rate. These, I don't know, may not be very high, but the idea is the bank's going to earn more by lending out your deposits than they're paying you an interest. So they could, I mean, there's plenty of fees on banking, but you could have no fee banking the way the bank, it's not a charity. It's just, it's going to earn money by lending out funds at a higher interest rate than it pays to its depositors. Same idea with a, a fixed index annuity. They're often marketed as not having any fees but and, and yes, there's no explicit fees, but the idea is there's a spread that whatever the insurance company is able to generate internally, 
they're going to keep part of that for themselves and they're only going to give you part of that. And so that's where they they stay in business. That's where they are able to generate revenues for their, to maintain their company and so forth. Got it. And uh, Karen, I, I got you. Feel free to reach out to us. I mean, uh, the, the last thing I, I would like is, you know, you're saying, you, you know, you, you don't, you're not feeling at, at ease with money, financial fitness, self-employed, busy, many skills, but you're now older and suddenly faced with managing parents' money, health and death. You know, just if, if you need sort of a starting point and someone to point you in the right direction, just reach out to us personally and we'll make sure, you know, you at least get pointed in, in the right direction with that. So, you know, thank you for your message. If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. Yeah, we, there's a lot yeah, of questions coming in. Your, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, what I'm doing, just the FYI, we're getting these on the chat. I'm kind of marking them off with a thumbs up as, as we get them in so we know that we're kind of addressing them. Here's yeah. one, I, 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 just because it's out there. Uh, my family have said the only way to truly protect against a crash in the U.S., like Japan, is a brokerage in another country and invest via their currency versus an international index fund. Any thoughts or really something worse like the U.S. going through what Argentina has gone through? I'll give this to Bob. The, the other thing I would mention here, as opposed to currencies, Bob, and I, I kind of know where you're going to go with this, but how, uh, you know, you can buy bond funds pegged to currency, you know, that, that kind of stuff or international funds that are also pegged, but take it away. Um, I'm not sure I'm taking it the way you, you're thinking there, but, okay, never mind. Um, you know, my, my first take is one, a lot of these conversations, it's really people's fears that are coming out here. Um, and a lot of it, and I, I've been on kind of an inflation kick for the past couple months. A lot of those conversations are really political conversations in disguise. And I, I think this is probably one of those types of conversations. They're from a purely economic standpoint. If the U.S. turned into Argentina, there's nowhere to hide. You know, that the U.S. would take the entire world economy with Robert it. Kiyosaki <laughs> was right all along. <laughs> um, so from that perspective, I'm not sure, you know, getting a, you know, a yeah, you're right, you're denominated right, right, right. brokerage account saves you in any meaningful way. I, and I, I think it would be riskier right, if you're, right. you're <laughs> actually talking about opening brokerage accounts in foreign countries because your opportunity to then gain access to those funds could be curtailed. <laughs> right. Now, that being said, I mean, if you are worried about, you know, catastrophic, moderately catastrophic stuff happening in the U.S., um, you know, you can uh, look catastrophic at, is catastrophic. Well, moderately, <laughs> moderately <laughs> catastrophic <laughs> here. What the hell is um, that? <laughs> you know, I, we well, only lost 30 states, not 20. <laughs> I'm not talking in terms of that level of catastrophe. I'm talking about the S&P 500 sustaining negative returns like 2008 for a while. Um, All right. 
you know, I mean, you can one shift out of equities into, you know, safer bonds. So, you know, U.S. Treasury bonds, you know, maybe some euro bonds, you know, some big foreign government bonds, things like that, that are highly unlikely to meaningfully default, um, you know, and that would be one way, you know, there was a fad a while ago, you know, catastrophe bonds that only pay off in terms of a natural disaster or something like that. Uh, I don't hear too much about those anymore, probably thankfully. Um, but, you know, it's really going to come down to, you know, you need to build your portfolio with a very, very low level of risk. You know, if, if you're worried about the financial system falling apart, uh, but still operating, you know, you want a very low level of risk in your portfolio. If you're worried about the financial system just falling apart full stop, which is what the U.S. looking like Argentina means, go buy, you know, beans and guns. Because um, saying that you own a gold bar or, you know, shares of some commodity fund, uh, if it's not on your person, doesn't mean anything. You know, if that's the level of worry that you have, don't invest in risky assets. Don't invest in non-tangible things that aren't on your physical person. I think Bitcoin and solves this. Stepping Absolutely. back a little from like complete catastrophe <laughs> earlier in my career, before really getting into retirement income, I was part of a study that looked at like pension funds in different countries and their investment approaches and really came to appreciate the idea of international diversification when a country experiences economic problems, yep. there's a reasonable chance that their currency could depreciate. And so if you are exposed to currency risk, you you have a nice natural hedge against some domestic market volatility. So I, I do like the idea of broader international diversification without necessarily yeah. uh, I, removing the currency risk involved in that. And, and maybe that's one way to get at the no, same idea uh, here. no. 100%. But that's something you should be doing anyway. Just don't open yeah, a brokerage account. I, I think in the Bob's point. I, that wouldn't end well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we're reading it from the standpoint of, I was reading it initially going where Bob, where Wade was going with it. You're taking it like catastrophe. You, if U.S. falls, everything falls, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you're saying, you know, what are you going to do, right? But I think Wade's right. Like, if, if I'm answering this question not just as a sort of a normal catastrophe <laughs> mild yeah, Bob, catastrophe. to use your parlance yeah just just diversify you should be diversifying anyways bob is like you should be diversified anyways yeah you know regardless if there's going to be a pending catastrophe or not because i think that's what you need to disabuse yourself on there is going to be a catastrophe there is going to be some. there's always this wall of worry and it becomes it's largely driven because of your political proclivities i think the way to look at it is just you want exposure across the globe and that will help diversify you away from anything happening, you know, in the, you, in the, in your domestic, uh, land, if you will, I'll, I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. And you could do the same thing with bonds internationally. All right. We're going to wait. You want to, you want to, you pick out some questions, Wade. I think I've been kind of dealing myself. Okay. I did see one that was about, uh, building a social security ladder. I'm trying to find where that one went. Yeah, we've had that, that two one. social security bridges. That's where did it? Alan. Oh yeah, um, there it is. Okay. Alan. Okay, I got it. While I like the concept of building a bond ladder for a social security bridge, doing so would require selling equity holdings. 
generating substantial gains. While I have not yet modeled this in detail, my gut feel is that a total return approach might be more effective in this situation. Thoughts, and in parentheses, don't let Bob answer. <laughs> yeah, sure. So ahead, let's, let's, we need a scenario for this. Let's say you're 62 years old and you're retiring. You've decided to defer Social Security to 70. Uh, what that means is for these next eight years, you're going to have a much higher distribution need from your investments. And then once Social Security starts in eight years, you still have to probably take a distribution from your investments, but it's going to be much smaller because you're going to get a 77% inflation-adjusted increase in your Social Security by waiting for that period. So how do you fill that gap? And the issue with the total returns portfolio is that increases sequence risk. If I have to use a higher withdrawal rate for the first eight years and then a lower withdrawal rate afterwards... I'm exposed to a lot more sequence risk. A downturn can really derail that portfolio more dramatically. So the idea, the reason why the term social security delay bridge exists is to try to move away from that idea of just using the diversified portfolio total returns approach to cover that much larger distribution need before social security starts. Now, if it does require generating a lot of taxes to build the bridge, that's certainly a consideration, but maybe as part of a tax planning um, situation, you know, if these are, if you're retired and this is all long-term capital gains, you've got a pretty big runway, at least before you actually start to get into that 15% preferential income bracket. So there could be some opportunities there, but more generally as well, if you're not at the stage yet where you need to build this bridge, you could start layering it out. Oftentimes the way we describe building a bond ladder for retirement is if you have the runway for it, if I'm say, I want to have a 10 year bond ladder at the time I retire, and I'm 10 years away from retirement, each year, instead of investing in bond funds, I, I build a layer, I buy a 10-year bond that will mature 10 years later. And then by the time I get to retirement, I now have a 10-year bond ladder in place without having to build it out all at once. And so to the extent that it's possible, you might think about something similar with how you approach building a social security delay bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that actually answers Leeward's question there uh, at the same time about, you know, really kind of the same question. I'm an income need matcher, more time segmented, time segmented than not, and open to pull from equities versus fixed income in good market years, and also use guardrails until Social Security at 70. I mean, that's really kind of that same sort of thought process, obviously not exactly the same, but that same sort of thought process into you know how to build that level of reliable income um, to bridge that gap into Social Security. Yeah, and it's building a lot of the different okay. pieces that we, we talk about as all being part of viable strategies. Of course, we can't really comment directly on your personal situation there, but at least the building blocks are there for something that sounds reasonable. <laughs> we, got, we kind of missed this from Lee, just as we're knocking these out. Uh, and it seems, guys, we're going to have to probably uh, at some point stop. Uh, we'll, we'll give a you know few minutes here, but maybe this is good for like a reoccurring theme because yeah. it seems to be we have nice a lot of questions still. So yeah, we could uh, make this a more regular thing with the blog yeah, so, and, and uh, the podcast. I mean, yeah. This question I, I, I get, but I don't. Uh, it says for safety first, folks. My outlay needs in the future. Think about a thirty thousand dollar roof in ten years have me drawing at that time. 
However, I have this element of hate. I, I have this element of I hate the thought of the big draw. How do I reconcile? So if I, I think this question may be like know. if <laughs> imagination. I have no idea. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, if every ten years you need to take out thirty thousand dollars, you want to somehow amortize that and take out three thousand dollars every year and behaviorally, maybe it sounds better. Put it in some CD. Right, I, I don't know how. It's just you can plan ahead for that and. If you're more safety first, it's you don't necessarily, it's back to this idea of the total return portfolio. You don't necessarily want to take that big distribution out from a total return portfolio where you have to take it that year. And if you get a bad market downturn right before that, you're taking a pretty big distribution at an inopportune time. Maybe you do layer in a, a fixed income holding that will mature. And if you know, although I guess with a roof, it's kind of estimating 10 years versus knowing exactly in 10 years that you need to replace it. But yeah, layering but in some sort of bond holding to do that right. so that you're not as exposed to a big yeah, distribution yeah. all in one year. Yeah. And I think this really comes down to, you know, you need to make sure you have a big enough pool of reserves. Um, you know, those reserve assets that are not, earmark to specific spending or, and usually not in, you know, substantially mm -hmm. risky assets. They might be in, you know, short-term bonds or something, but they're not in the stock market type yeah. of thing. Yeah. And this is where the RISA could be helpful to help determine true versus technical liquidity and identifying a strategy that may be more tailor-made for, for Lee. But I do agree. I mean, if you're having trouble cutting a check for $30,000 and that could sort of dent your distribution, especially if in year eight, the market goes to hell in the handbasket and you have to take a distribution, then yeah, just do it over time and put it in some interest bearing account that matures at that, at that set yeah, time. It could be used for like a quasi buffer right? asset where you do have some reserve asset that if markets are doing fine in, in 10 years, you'll take the distribution from your portfolio, but you've got a backup where if you know you need to take that distribution, you, know, uh, we you have some other resource. You know, we need, we need a, we need like a Dave Ramsey chat GPT. I'm sure we'd get a. <laughs> what is it? We'd get a good answer here. All right. <laughs> so we got here. You want me to continue here? There's a, do you agree that the benefits of using an FIA versus a bond portfolio is that the FIAs have no interest rate risk, credit risk, market risk, and risk of depletion in terms of outliving your income. So the FIA is a panacea for everything bad in the world uh, versus having a bond portfolio. That's the way that statement is expressed does sound a bit like a marketing angle on the FIA. So I wouldn't, I mean, there is interest rate risk <laughs> to the extent that you have each term, you renew the terms of the contract. And so if interest rates decrease, the, the cap may have to come down. There is credit risk because you are relying on the insurance company to support what it says it will support. Um, I, like there's less market risk in, to the extent that you have principal protection, but yeah, I mean, uh, and then I, uh, with the risk of asset, like depletion, I'm not pitch. sure what, what to make of that exactly. Are we now adding a living benefit to the FIA or uh, I, I do think that, Research that I've done speaks positively about the potential role for annuities, especially with lifetime income protections as part of a retirement income strategy. But um, yeah, the, 
it's not a complete panacea or panacea, I should say, for for every kind of risk out there at, <laughs> at the same time. No, you're right. Panacea. Panacea. Panacea, right? I don't, I don't know. I, I said it wrong. Every, yeah, there it's fancy. Alex yeah, yeah, is trying yeah. to amaze me here. I'm messing you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it does seem markety the way that the, the way that 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 question was was asked. Uh, Williams giving you props, Wade, for, yeah, it's a lack of transparency about annuities. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and yeah, it's, it is unfortunate because I think many people just walk because they don't even bother, you know, it's just one of these mental shortcuts that you take. Annuities bad, markets are good, and they move on. And that's that's actually quite unfortunate because as we've seen with Arisa, look, two-thirds of the people want some role of contractual income for retirement income. That's just what we see repeatedly. Not a value statement, just just an observation there. Uh, you want me to read the next one? Uh, I am an income need matcher. More time that segment was the one than we, that. From Leeward, we we kind of touched on in that that broad. Oh, that's right. When you combined yeah. them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, let me see here. Thoughts on using? Okay, we 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 thought about this earlier. Uh, it came up in a write-in mm-hmm. question too. Thoughts on using bond funds with different durations to use instead of bond ladders. Pros and cons, and how does distribution yield and reinvestment risk play into this? Yeah, Thank you, in That's an accumulation yeah. world, there's something called duration matching that you, it doesn't matter. If, if you have the bond fund with the right duration, you're not going to be exposed to interest rate risk. Now, at the same time, that does exist with retirement income, but it is extremely you're going to have to explain duration, wait, I'm sorry, just because people yeah, aren't going so, to know. Well, <laughs> the non-technical version of it, the, the basic, without getting in, into any weird aspects of it, it's the approximate time to maturity for the bond. And the longer-term maturity for bonds, they're more exposed to interest rate risk. If interest rates go up, a longer-term bond is going to have a bigger drop in value than a shorter-term bond. So if you have a bond with the same duration or a bond fund with the same duration as your expense you're trying to fund, you can avoid interest rate risk. And with that argument, you can say it doesn't matter whether you use a bond fund or an individual bond. In retirement income, that's still true. It's just the duration of your liability in retirement gets a lot more complicated. And so it's much more difficult to use bond funds without creating interest rate risk for yourself. It's not impossible. And there are a few commercial enterprises that have developed solutions, but they're uncommon because it is so complicated. And that's why I think it's much easier to think about bond funds instead of somehow duration matching your bond funds when we talk about uh, generating income in those short-term buckets. No, I mean, the, the, so yeah, the way to think about it is generally the bond funds are going to be in part of your risky asset as just part of your investments. You use them to moderate, you know, the level of risk in your portfolio. Individual bonds are more on the reliable income side. Um, the one complication, we always get this one, is those defined maturity uh, bond funds, where it will be a fund that will own only bonds maturing in 2027 to pick a year. Um, and those- Because they be... want to do the work for you. They want to do the work exactly. for you. Exactly. They just figure, oh, we'll just buy them ourselves in the open market yeah. as opposed to you needing to do that. And you buy it in the ticker symbol 
and your home. Right. And those can, be, those can be useful tools if you're building a bond ladder or matching specific spending or something like that. But, you know, it's you're paying for convenience. Those have an expense ratio. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with paying for convenience. We do it all the time, every day. Um, but it's just important to recognize, you know, you, you are paying for that. <laughs> Great. Yep. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we'll wrap That's it up with answer, one Bob. more question from Karen. <laughs> it's a, it is a complicated question, but it's so with my book and, and probably the best kind of starting book to think about would be, would be the retirement planning guidebook. But is it appropriate for beginners in terms of using it for a book club? Because the members of that club have so many retirement or financial questions. So I do get a little hesitant to suggest the book for pure beginners because it it's it's a complicated book. It, it's definitely for for people who have some basic stuff. It's not a beach read here. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's not that it's it's not like math or anything. It's just there's a lot of complexity, and, and sometimes the reviews on Amazon do tend to suggest that the book is too complicated. So I'd be a little hesitant to suggest it for pure beginners. However, if there is somebody who can guide the book club and who is able to answer questions or make sense of what everyone's reading, it could be possible. It's just, I don't know of a better option to suggest, but uh, at the same time, I wouldn't want you to have everyone get the book for the book club and then everyone just tells you that it's they can't understand anything the book's talking about. So that would be the, my only caveat. You know, the way I would, I would, I would think about it here is the book is not a book to read from the first page to the last mm-hmm. page in a sitting. It's a resource handbook, guidebook, guidebook. <laughs> better said, hence the title. To me, it's, it's what you put on the shelf. And you go back to when you're like, oh, let me think. I have social security in my head. Let me see what the state of play is. Or I'm thinking about long-term care. Let me see what the state of play is. You know, that kind of thing. That's really what it gets at. So I don't, you know, to read that from cover to cover <laughs> takes, takes uh, tenacity, yeah. <laughs> takes tenacity, takes ambition and takes visine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things that, no, it's just, it is what it is, right? The, you'd get more out of it, I think, if you read the first as a book club, read the first chapter, or the last. Take chapter the Risa, yeah. and then discuss. That's or the together. last chapter, you're right. Or the last chapter, t- t- but t- take the Risa and discuss that experience. You know, mm-hmm. and then you have the book. And if it's something that you do decide to do as a book club, let us know. We'd love to to help you out. We think it's kind of fun. Yeah. Right. And with that being said, I think we probably should wrap things up for the day. But we've yeah, we've gotten so many great questions. And I don't think we, well, we, we did answer most of the ones that came in live. Maybe not all of them. Something might have snuck through the cracks there. We still had some questions, too, that came in beforehand. So we should do this on a more regular basis. I think it's a great opportunity to, to interact with everyone. And, and thank you for listening for 100 episodes, or if we end up putting this into two, now it's episode 101 as well. So thanks, everyone, for being part of Retire with Style. Thank you, Bob, for joining us today. Thanks to Bree and Amber for all the work you do behind the scenes. And thank you to you as well, Alex, for being a great co-host. Wait, no, the, the thanks goes to you.
you you just make it easy. You you make make my job so easy. <laughs> I just say wait, and <laughs> off you go. All right. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much. To a hundred more right. white weight. Well, that didn't sound right. I said like white weight, like like right weight. I, I can't even say it alliteration wise. Correct you are weight. Correct, sir. <laughs> thank you, thank you, and and Robert. Any parting words? Uh, no, I just uh, I'm really glad I was I was wrong and and we kept at it, and uh, you know I like you said to a hundred more. Yeah, yeah, YouTube YouTube channel. <laughs> That's right. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Wade and Alex are both principals of McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 